part two this morning of our new series, I Will Give You Rest, Reflections on the Sabbath. Um, and Sabbath, as we said last week, means to stop, to cease, to pause. And so I think it's good if at the beginning of each of these messages on our reflections on the Sabbath, uh, we can just take a moment to savor, just stop and take a moment to savor a, a moment or two of silence. So if you'll just close your eyes with me and let's do that together. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. So, um, it was a number of years ago now, I was invited by some Jewish friends to go and attend synagogue with them. And uh, one of these friends was uh, a neighbor, is a neighbor in our building, and the other is, was a friend who used to attend Trinity Heights before he left the, the city. And so we went together, first of all, to the synagogue on the Upper West Side. Uh, and then we went to the synagogue on the Upper East, a synagogue on the Upper East Side, it's called Central Synagogue. And they have a beautiful building. I mean, it's just beautiful architecture. If you ever get a chance to go uh, one evening and, and step in there, it's worth going just, just to see that. Uh, and then on the Upper West Side, they had this almost Broadway-esque type of music. It was amazing. And I think they, once a year, they would spoof one of the Broadway uh, shows. And, uh, and so between the, the, the music in the one and the beautiful architecture on the other, 
at the end of those evenings, I was ready to convert. Um, but <laughs> but uh, my favorite part of both of those services, same part in each service, was, was actually right near the beginning of the service where they would sing uh, what is the, the Shabbat song or the Sabbath song. And the Sabbath song is called, Come My Beloved, Come My Beloved. And it's an invitation to a, a mysterious beloved, probably God, to come and join with the congregation in welcoming in the Sabbath. And in the song, the Sabbath is personified as a woman. Uh, it's a, a, a queen or, or a bride. And what happens right at the end, the, the last singing of the last verse of that song, is that the entire congregation stands together and they turn to the back of the synagogue, to the, to the entrance, and they welcome in this Sabbath bride, the Sabbath queen, into their midst. I tell you, it's a really interesting experience to, to personify the Sabbath as a queen or, or, or a bride. And, and to sort of sing her in, sing, welcome her into, into your, your midst. And, and it's a very, very powerful moment for me. And, and I don't know how else to describe it, but in that moment, I felt that a huge weight, a huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. It, it, it was amazing. And, and it was as if I was being given permission to rest. Permission from whom? Well, permission from God, of course, but also from each other, from the congregation. It's as if by, by performing this ritual every week, the congregation was saying to each other, it's okay, you don't have to strive right now. You don't have to be productive right now. You don't have to be efficient and effective right now. It's okay. You can relax. It's okay for you to stop. It's okay for you to cease and to pause. It's okay for you to rest. Very powerful moment. And perhaps some of you need to experience that even this morning, to, to, just to know God grants you permission to rest. And that together as a community, we want to grant each other that permission, that permission to rest. Well, the Sabbath song was composed in Thessalonica in the 16th century. Um, and the author was drawing from the rabbinic interpretation of the Song of Solomon. And the rabbinic interpretation of the Song of Solomon uh, is that the, the, the lover and the, and the maiden are, are, in, are, in a sense, a, a metaphor for the relationship between Israel and God. Right? But behind all of this, this sort of, um, what's the word, um, metaphorical allegorization, right? Behind all of this allegorization of, of Sabbath and God and Israel is this incredible love poetry, this, this celebration of this relationship. It's, it's some of the greatest love poetry ever written. And the first application this week, and we'll have more applications later, but this today I just want to start off by suggesting that you read through the Song of Solomon in the next week or two. Just take your time to read, read through it as part of your reflections on the Sabbath. Um, I'll, um, I'll become clearer why in a minute, but let me just uh, read you the, a section from the chapter one. While the king was at his table, 
my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. The beams of our house, our cedars, our rafters, our firs. And as you read on, it gets steamy and it gets more explicit. And, and it's really this, this incredible celebration of, um, of romantic love and erotic love. And, and it's full of longing and it's full of waiting and desiring and delaying and anticipating. Our own culture of efficiency, immediacy, of instant gratification, instant everything, hookups, etc., etc. Our own culture could not naturally produce this kind of poetry because it knows less and less of this kind of delight. Delight in the delayed, slower, drawn-out pursuit of love and romance and sex. What the Song of Solomon is describing, that kind of delight, it happens slowly, and it takes time. Now, I think it's really interesting that the author of the Shabbat song would reach to the Song of Solomon and connect it to the Sabbath. And I think it's even more interesting that synagogues around the world for centuries now, synagogues around the world for centuries have been have been making this part of their liturgy weekly, and they have been marking the beginning of the Sabbath with, with what? With this delight, with the delight of these two lovers. But I think that's the right connection to make. I do, because I think that kind of delight is right there in the foundational Sabbath story. Uh, the foundational Sabbath story, as we said last week, is really the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and so if, if we go back there this week, what I want us to notice this week is that there is this repeated phrase at the end of each day of creation. So God creates something, and then it says, and God saw that it was good. And, and then you get to, and it says it was evening and it was morning the first day. And then it says again, God saw that it was good. He creates, and then it says evening and morning and the second day. And he just keeps saying this, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And so you have this picture of this workman or this artist who steps back at the end of each day of their creation to admire their handiwork, to, to enjoy it, to celebrate it, and sees that it is good. And so at the, we get to the very end of the uh, creation story, and it says this, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so they enter the Sabbath like that. And I think it's, I think it's important to, to realize that when it says God saw that it was good, or God saw that it was very good, this is not like, I don't know, Plato's conception of, of conceptual idea of the good. Right? This, this is not uh, another philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who, who talks about the disinterested artist who's making a sort of objective statement about their work. This is not like the cold, aloof, detached, unemotional Brit who looks at all of life and goes, 
oh well, there it is. You know, this is this is this is not like this is not like that. That's not how this works. This much more like the Greek mythology of um, you, you know the story of Pygmalion, right? And and Pygmalion he creates this. He's an, he's an artist. He's a sculptor. And he produces this beautiful sculpture of a beautiful woman, and he falls in love with his own art. He falls in love with the sculpture, and lucky for him, the goddess Venus comes and brings the statue to life. Um, and, and so it's much more along those, it's not this cold, detached, platonic, conceptual, uh, objective idea of the good, God saw that it was good, it, it's more this Pygmalion-style rejoicing. And actually, that's exactly how the psalmist draws this out. So if you, if you go to Psalm 104, what you'll find is it's a creational psalm, it's, talking, it's drawing heavily on the creation story, and in this version of the creation story, uh, what he says is this. He, he's, he picks up on this, God saw that it was good, and he translates it for us. He says, well, may the Lord rejoice in his works. May the Lord rejoice in his works. It is a moment where God delights in his creation. So when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation for us to stop the way God does at the end of each day, to stop the way God does at the end of each week, and to delight in creation, to delight in God, to delight in each other, and to delight in life itself. Many of you will have read the Screwtape Letters, where C.S. Lewis imagines a senior demon giving instructions to a junior demon, right? Have, have any of you read this, right? And, and so, yeah, so quite a few of you. So he, he's giving these instructions to a junior demon, and he's telling him how to handle the person he's been put in charge of, his patient, as they call him, right? And there's this moment where the, the junior demon is really pleased with himself because he's, he's used pleasure as a sort of a, a bait, right? And, and so he thinks he's controlling his, his uh, patient through pleasure. And, and, the, and the senior demon, Screwtape, gets really angry, and, and uh, he says, a walk in a beautiful place, a cup of tea, a good book which he read simply because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his friends. Both pleasure and pain are unmistakably real and therefore they give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. People should not be allowed to maintain any personal taste, even if it is just a fondness for country cricket or collecting stamps or drinking cocoa. These small practices of enjoyment, of delight, of pleasure may seem trivial, but there's a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness to them. And that creates these moments of transcendence and puts people dangerously close, from the demon's point of view, puts people dangerously close to their maker. There are many cultural forces at work which do screw tapes bidding in our lives. There are many cultural forces at work which are working to squeeze out the, our capacity to be able to delight in every day that God gives us. Of course, sometimes, as I've said before, one of the best ways to, to recognize what, that might, what those different cultural forces are is to sort of step out of your own culture for just a few minutes, right? Um, and uh, we lived in, in Mexico for three years. And 
I remember when we came back from Mexico, we would meet up for lunch with friends and it was in the middle of the week. And so after about 50 minutes or so, they had to rush to get back to the office. And of course they did. It's the middle of the busy work week. They've got to get back to the office. They've got responsibilities. It's a perfectly natural thing to do. It's just that after three years in Mexico, we got used to these lunches where people would come for lunch and then they would just linger. <laughs> just linger. And I tell you, that was one of the things I really missed about Mexico when we got back to America. But don't worry, I quickly snapped back into efficiency mode uh, all too quickly. Think about the travels you've, you've done or, or different moments you've had to step out of your own culture. I remember when we took a, a trip uh, with some friends to France, uh, Julia and our friend Sarah, they wanted to get a cup of coffee to go. And so they went and asked, uh, and saw this nice uh, cafe, and they went in and asked for coffee to go. And at first they were thinking, are we just, is our French that bad that we've just said it badly, pronounced it badly, we're misunderstanding what he's saying, it's all very broken, so it is pretty bad, so maybe, so they said it again, but it turns out, no, he'd understood them perfectly, and what he said was, is no, no, we don't do to go, just take a seat, I'll bring you a coffee, and you can enjoy it there. And that's what they had to do, they had to just stop, and they had to just sit there and drink the coffee as they watched the world go by talking to a, a chef here in the city who, who's American, but he'd grown up in the south of France. And he said his friends used to ask him, he was a young guy, and his friends used to ask him, is it true? Is it true that in America, people walk down the street with a drink in their hands, just drinking it, walking as they go? Is, is, that, is, that, is that normal? Can you, can you even imagine what different cultural expectations are at work that you would even have to clarify the, the veracity of something like that or, or verify the veracity of something like that or not? I mean, this is amazing, right? Just completely different. Now, of course, I can quickly come up with the, the, the cons, the, 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 the negatives of, of doing things the French way or doing things the, the Mexican way. But that's not my interest this morning. What, what I want this morning to do is to allow these, these moments to sort of shed light on our own cultural context. And obviously, what, what, I've, what I've noticed, what I've noticed on, on more than one occasion, is that while, while these people have these, these mechanisms in their culture, these, these natural cultural forces which push back against the demand to be efficient, to be effective, to be productive, because there's nothing efficient uh, about having a three-hour dinner. There's, there's nothing efficient uh, about, about lingering after lunch when lunch is, is, is over. Um, there, there's nothing uh, efficient about, about uh, having to stop to have your coffee when you could have taken it with you and had it on the go, right? But they've got these natural mechanisms in their culture which just push back against that. What I notice is that we don't have as many I won't say we won't have any, but we don't have as many mechanisms in our culture which naturally, cultural forces which naturally push back against this demand for efficiency and effectiveness and productivity because we are an efficiency, that's what we are, we're an efficiency culture. We, we are a culture of effectiveness, a productivity culture, an instant culture, a get it done yesterday culture. And we think it's normal, it's the air we breathe and, and it's the soup we swim in and, and yeah, for us it is normal, it's normal. So what I want to do this morning is to finish up by suggesting some ways, some mechanisms that we might introduce into our own lives that would allow us to take Jesus up on his invitation to delight in Sabbath rest. Last week, we suggested four ways we might think about technology in Sabbath terms, right? We, we said that Sabbath is about an invitation to relationship. It elevates relationships, an invitation to be close, to be intimate. It's an invitation to be present, 
right? and, we have, and, and technology is constantly interrupting our capacity, our ability to be present, and, and so we came up with uh, these, these four things. Uh, fight the urge to check the phone first thing in the morning. Put your phone into airplane mode, do not stir mode when meeting with people. Don't bring the phone to the bedroom. Turn off the phone for 24 hours once a week. Um, as I said last week, these are not the definitive rules for doing this. It's not, you've got to do it this way. You may have some other way of handling technology. And if you do, please let me know. I want to know, and we can share that with, with others as well. Um, so what I'm about to sh share, again, same thing. Okay, this is just four different things that we can do to, to, to mechanisms to, to introduce into our own personal lives and the culture of our own community that will push back against that demand for non-stop productivity and efficiency. Um, so the first is uh, start where you are with the pleasures at hand. In Letters to Malcolm, C.S. Lewis devotes a letter to the subject of pleasure. His advice? Begin where you are. He writes that he once thought he had to start by summoning up what we believe about the goodness and greatness of God, by thinking about creation and redemption and all the blessings of life. But instead, he says, we should begin with the pleasures at hand. For him, a walk beside a babbling brook. For me, it's a cup of tea that goes with my Dutch mini pancakes with berries that they serve at Le Pan Quotidien. If you haven't tried those, you should. A slow savoring of those moments, which leads us to thankfulness, not simply for the pleasures themselves, but for the God who provides them. As busy, distracted, hurried people, we can easily start to miss these tiny sort of theophanies in our day. But as Tish Harrison Warren puts it, if we are fully alive and whole, if we're fully alive and whole, no pleasure would be too ordinary or commonplace to stir up adoration. Just start where you are with the pleasures at hand. So what will that moment in your day be? You could call it a sanctuary. What is that sanctuary in your day going to be? What, what is that moment, that ritual, where you are intentionally going to focus and, and be present and then delight? What, what's it going to be? As I said, for me, it's a cup of tea, my Dutch mini pancakes. What's it going to be for you? Second, uh, I want to suggest that you introduce one meal, a slow meal a week, um, where you just take the time to make it and take the time to enjoy and delight in it. Uh, Richie last week um, talked about how on a, on a Sunday morning his family would uh, have these big breakfasts. It was just this ritual, and you knew what was going to be on the menu, and you had it every week, and it was this slow, leisurely breakfast. So I want to encourage you to introduce this one slow, leisurely meal. The slowest meals I've ever had in my life have been in France. They have these three-hour dinners. Um, and, uh, you know, we, when we were there with those friends, we, their kids were pretty young at the time. And I was like, how are these kids going to sit for three hours at a dinner? How's that going to work? You know, it was incredible. These children, they just slipped right into it that first evening. They were, the, the, next, the next night, they were going, oh, what's going to be on the cheese course? You know, what's for the, they, they totally got into this. These are the young children, but got into these three leisurely three-hour dinners. They looked forward to them. Highlight of the day. Third thing is to introduce uh, an entire day in your week where you rest. Again, I'm not a Sabbatarian. I'm not saying you have to do it. You have to take off this day a week. And if you don't do this, you're displeasing God. And you're going, no, no, it's not, it's, not like, it's not like that. But it could, it could be 
that the thing that you absolutely need more than anything else right now is one full day of rest in the week. And I, and I don't mean a day where you, you're going to fill it doing all the chores that you have to do because your life is so busy the rest of the days of the week because you're working and you don't have time to do all the chores, so you do it that day. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying a day where you do nothing. Or, or a day, if you're going to do something instead of nothing, here's what you do. For me, it's a ritual. We'll go for a walk in the park and we'll enjoy the beauty of the park and we'll pop into Central Park Zoo and we'll look at the animals right, and enjoy the beauty of those animals. Uh, or, or sometimes we'll just walk into a lobby of a new building we haven't been in before and we will admire the beauty of the architecture. Sometimes we'll just stare at it for a minute or two, a bit longer if you've got it, but just to stand there and stare at it for a minute or two. To, to, to savor and delight in creation and to savor and delight in the, the, the art that is inspired by creation. And then finally, um, make Sabbath possible for everyone within your sphere of influence. Look, you, you may be in a position, I know some of you are or will be, where you have authority in, in your workplace. And without your active, intentional endorsement, people around you may feel directly or indirectly pressure to constantly produce and constantly perform. So what are you doing to create an environment in the workplace where people feel they can Sabbath? Perhaps you don't have that, quite that influence at, at work. What about with your friends? Because so much of this, you see, as we were talking about in the, the synagogue, right, is so much of it is creating this sense of being able to rest, and, and so much of that comes from the community, us telling each other, it's okay, you can cease your striving. It's okay for you to rest. Doesn't have to be these steps. You've got other ideas, please let me know. But it's got to look like something. And I think it would be interesting to see what it would look like if we took these steps together. How would life be? Let's pray. As we close our eyes once more and think in the terms of, that we've been saying these past two weeks of how Sabbath elevates relationship and invites us to be present. And this week, how Sabbath invites us to delight in life itself. Let's take a moment to savor once more Jesus' invitation. Jesus says to you today, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. For the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Lord of all, to Thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. And for the joy of human love, brother, sister, parent, child, friends on earth and friends above, for all gentle thoughts and wild. Lord of all, to Thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise.
thy church that evermore lifteth holy hands above, offering up on every shore her pure sacrifice of love. Lord of all, to thee we praise this our hymn of grateful praise. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. For thyself, best gift divine, to the world so freely given. For that great, great love of thine, peace on earth and joy in heaven. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. Lord of all, to Thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise.